The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Andy Beckett. We spoke about why he believes, despite being in power on both sides of the Atlantic, conservatism is in decline and how conservative ideology is proving itself unable to adjust to the challenges of the 21st century. The interview was prompted by Andy's long read in The Guardian, A Zombie Party, The Deepening Crisis of Conservatism, which you can find a link to in the description of today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Into the Tempest by William I. Robinson. In this critical new work, sociologist William Robinson offers an engaging and accessible introduction to his theory of global capitalism. He applies that theory to a wide range of contemporary topics, including globalisation, the transnational capitalist class, immigrant justice, educational reform, labour and anti-racist struggles, policing, Trumpism and the resurgence of a neo-fascist right, and the rise of a global police state. Sure to spark debate, this is a timely contribution to a renewal of critical social science and Marxist theory for the new century. In North America, the book is available directly from Haymarket Books, and in the UK and Europe, the book is available through all the usual online outlets. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry, and Spotify, and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Paul Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Andy Beckett is a feature writer for The Guardian and author of several books, including Promised You a Miracle, Why 1980-82 Made Modern Britain, and also Pinochet in Piccadilly, Britain and Chile's Hidden History. So you say in your article um, in the long read for The Guardian that conservatism is facing a crisis of competence, of intellectual energy and coherence, of electoral effectiveness, and perhaps most serious of all, of social relevance. Could you sort of outline those different aspects of that crisis? Sure. I mean, I think the crisis of governing competence is what I would see as a sort of rather chaotic kind of broad brush governance that's been practiced by the Conservatives in Britain since 2010 and by Trump in America um, and prior to that by the Bush administration in America. So it's a kind of form of governance that emphasizes controlling the discourse about something like, say, the necessity for austerity or the necessity to invade Iraq, but can't do the detail of actually making austerity work or making the administration of Iraq work it's a broad brush kind of carelessness with the business of actually governing, which I think mm. is something that's 
arisen in conservatism gradually over the last 30 or so years. Um, social relevance, I think that conservatism in both countries has sort of lost touch with multiculturalism, with the growth of the kind of middle class left, which I think is a very important electoral factor in Britain particularly, but I think also in a lot of US cities like Los Angeles, where the Republicans used to do very well, New York City, those kind of cities, increasingly wealthy people who work in the private sector are voting for parties of the left rather than the right. And I think that's something conservatism has barely begun to think about. And I also think there's a kind of crisis of electoral performance that although conservatives win elections, increasingly over the last 30 years they've won them very narrowly sometimes in rather dubious circumstances they haven't had the sort of really decisive victories that reagan and thatcher used to regularly have on that first point on that question of basic competence uh, what do you attribute that to i think that governing is always difficult obviously all governments make mistakes the left and the right but i think that there's become there's a sort of insularity i think about the right on the transatlantic right where it's mostly interested in its own kind of criteria for success and its own sets of facts rather than awkward facts. So, for example, when George W. Bush wanted to invade Iraq or was being encouraged to by the neocons, the U.S. military said to him, this is going to be very difficult and occupying Iraq is going to be very difficult technically and it's going to need a lot of troops. And essentially the neocons just said, we don't believe you, we're the experts um, and through kind of our intellectual charisma, we're going to tell you how this is going to be done. And pretty much all the things that the American military said would go wrong in Iraq in terms of this insurgency came to pass. So I think sort of there's an insularity of conservatives where they just don't want any more to hear about how difficult things might be. I think also of someone like Ian Duncan Smith and the reforms of the welfare system in Britain that he sort of initiated. Again, it, it, when he was interrogated about how they weren't really working or they weren't working very well, he would just say, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, I believe that they're working rather than let's hear the facts and let's kind of adjust to that. Um, mm. So I think there's a sort of lack of evidence-based policymaking. Um, there's always obviously a degree of sort of, you know, bluffing in government, of course, but I think the proportions of kind of bluffing and practical realism have got sort of out of whack in conservatism now. And is that, I mean, do you think it's a, a sort of a question of of overreach due to the very comprehensive victory of, of conservatism over the 20th century, uh, the, the general defeat of the left, the defeat of the communist bloc, and in the case of the Iraq war, for instance, is it that once you've achieved the unipolar moment, you then seek to entirely uh, recreate the world in, in the way that you so wish? And the real constraints on doing so just, just go out, the, out of the window, because at that point, you believe you can kind of do anything. I think that's a really good point. I think that from the sort of late 80s onwards, obviously, with the collapse of the Soviet bloc and the apparent triumph of kind of free market capitalism you know, in, the, in the 90s, I think people on the right did feel that they could do anything and became overconfident. So things like invading Iraq and occupying Iraq, which was a real stretch strategically, they sort of thought we're going to go for that. Whereas I think that earlier conservative leaders might have thought, is, is this actually worth it? Is this going to work? I think it's very significant that the last successful generation of conservative politicians in Britain and America, the kind of Reagan-Thatcher generation, all grew up in the sort of 60s and 70s in a period where the right was having to fight very hard against kind of stronger liberal and left-wing forces. And I think as a result, there was a kind of a degree of caution 
um, in people like Margaret Thatcher beneath the kind of surface because they knew they couldn't take on every enemy at once. Um, and I think that's a caution that's kind of lacking in conservatives who have come of age sort of post 89. And I mean, in terms of declining electoral success and the comparative success of, of the Thatcher and the, and the Reagan governments, do, do you think there's a danger of perhaps overstating the the degree of popularity of, of those governments um, in the sense that, you know, neither Thatcher nor Reagan ever won a majority of the voting public? And some would argue that their projects depended on the passivity of much of the population rather than active support. And that they actually never sort of were able to constitute very broad appeal in the way conservative governments of the of the earlier post-war period could. I think that's a good point. I think we have to be careful not, if we're going to criticise conservatism now, we have to be careful not to kind of rose tint quite how fantastic in every way Thatcher and Reagan were as kind of electoral projects. Because you're right, they were a sort of, Thatcher was, Thatcherism was a sort of 40% project, which obviously in the British system is, is a lot, but it's not a lot in terms of a a democratic mandate and reagan as you say although he did well in the electoral college um wasn't you know winning you know enormous um sort of popularity ratings in fact reagan was almost as unpopular as trump is now for the first kind of couple of years of his first term so i think that's right but i still think that given that britain and america have the electoral systems they have Reaganism and Thatcherism were much more successful in kind of dominating those systems. And Thatcher obviously won, you know, two very big majorities and one pretty big majority. Um, whereas since 87, since her final majority, the Conservatives have only won one majority, which is, you know, Cameron's in 2015, which was tiny. So there has been a real falling off um, in terms of the vote. And obviously in America, um, the Republicans haven't won the popular vote in a presidential election in the last the last seven times. Sorry, they've won it once out of the last seven, which is, is not a lot really. Um, so there has been a falling off. But you're right to say that Thatcher and Reagan were, were sort of projects for the sort of 40, 45%, but that was enough. And I suppose, I guess that declining electoral viability is, is masked to some extent by the declining fortunes of, of social democracy as well. Yeah, that's right. That's helped. Exactly. The the decline of social democracy. And I think that it's always dangerous in politics if you're winning purely because your opponent is in trouble. I think to take a counterexample, when Blair won in 2005, Labour actually did very, very badly in that election. Um, I think they got about 35 percent of the vote. But because the Conservatives were in such a big hole, then Blair still got a decent majority. And I think Conservatism has relied a lot in the last 20 or 30 years on the sort of mistakes and splits on the centre-left and and on the left. But I think that's, in a way, sort of prevented them having a reckoning about how does conservatism kind of map on to how people are living nowadays. I don't think that conversation has really begun to happen because they've still been able to win just about. Trump just about managed to win against Hillary Clinton, although we can obviously discuss whether he won or not really and who helped him. But Mm. had there been a slightly better Democratic candidate, I think the flaws in the kind of Trump project would have become obvious and he would have lost by quite a lot. Um, and, and so, I mean, in the book, you, you talk about this, this crisis at the level of ideas. Could, could you talk a, bit, a little bit about that, sort of what the nature of the conservative ideological project is at this point and, and to what extent there is new thinking on the right? Sure. I mean, my sense is that really since the sort of mid 80s, certainly since the end of the 80s, increasingly the kind of conservative think tank world, but also kind of mainstream conservative journalism 
has just got stuck on a certain formula for kind of remaking societies and remaking economies, which is based on you know less government, lower taxes and less regulation. And obviously, those are things I don't expect conservatives to sort of abandon completely. But it feels like that formula hasn't really been updated. And we're, so we're going back to sort of 35 years. It's basically still the same formula. Whereas if you look at conservative thought in Britain and America between, say, the 40s and the 70s, there's a real sort of there's a real sort of churn of ideas to do with, you know, big state, small state, more authoritarian, less authoritarian. There's a really kind of rigorous back and forth about a lot of this stuff going on in even in you know, papers like The Telegraph and The Times, let alone in the kind of think tanks. And it feels to me and I follow these things quite a lot that. Whenever you talk to kind of someone in a free market think tank now, they're essentially saying things that they could have said in 1985. And even if you think those ideas are very, very solid and powerful as you know political ideas, society's changed a lot since 1985. And I think any politics that's going to be successful has to some extent reflect the kind of texture of everyday life and how it's shifting. And I think conservatism sort of lost its purchase on that. So all kinds of things that are going on, as I've mentioned, in cities to do with more immigration, to do with the spread of the kind of liberal, you know, university educated middle class and its huge electoral impact now. Conservatism hasn't even begun to think about that stuff. Um, And I'm waiting to get a, a good kind of policy paper from conservative think tank that says all these you know, advertising executives in Hackney who are very wealthy and voting Labour, this is how we're going to win them back. But you don't see that kind of stuff. On the other side of that, is is there more uh, serious thinking in terms of trying to construct a different electoral coalition, you know, sort of red Tory position where you where you try to a- appeal to a more working class base on, on, on the basis of, a, of an assumed patrioticness and social conservatism on the part of working class people, which, which uh, you know, I personally I would dispute, but <laughs> that's the that's the line. Sure. I think there are little bits of that. I mean, Philip Blonde obviously did that sort of red Tory stuff, you know, five or 10 years ago. And there's a little bit of that. I think that Nick Timothy wanted Theresa May to do some of that with his kind of Erdington conservatism, as he called it, you know, which was obviously, as you're suggesting, about uh, appealing to sort of low middle class, working class people who might be economically slightly left of centre, but, you know, pretty right wing on social issues. I think there's been some of that, but even that to me doesn't feel very creative. It feels like just an attempt to get back to the working class conservatism that existed in say the 20s, 30s and 40s, which is, that's a long time ago. It's quite an old fashioned vision of what the parties might, the parties of the right might do to kind of regenerate themselves. And it's about often, I think, slightly fetishizing a sort of white working class. It's not really got much to say about the Asian working class or the black working class or the Eastern European working class that's larger and larger in Britain now. It's not, to my mind, really engaging still with modernity. It's just trying to recreate a kind of Edwardian conservative coalition, which, you know, would be better than the one they've currently got. But it's not enough, I don't think. Hmm. And I mean, do, do you think there was ever much appetite for that? position within the Conservative Party? Because I suppose the difficulty with thinking about its viability is that the project, such as it was, was was just cut off at the knees by the, the 2017 election result and, and people like yeah. Nick, Nick Timothy were forced out. But but do you think there was much appetite within the party itself anyway for, for, for that kind of line? I think it was quite limited. I think that when Theresa May made the speech that she made after she became leader and said various sort of left of centre things about the economy and who the winners and losers are, 
that went down very, very badly in places like Conservative Home, you know, the big Conservative website. Um, the reaction to that, you know, from The Guardian was, was sort of, oh, this is quite interesting, but people on the right generally seem to be kind of horrified. And I think I took that as a sign that they were still quite stuck, that that speech was interpreted entirely through the lens of sort of mid-80s peak Thatcherism rather than conservatives thinking, hang on, the free market isn't actually working that well for a lot of people now, and we, we don't need to ditch the market, but we need to think quite hard about that. And when I talk to conservative MPs who are on the more sort of thoughtful side of the party about you know, the modern economy and so on, they will agree with me that the free market isn't working that well for a lot of working class people. And you think, okay, they're moving along a bit, but then their solutions are always essentially more deregulation, um, which, you know, might have some part to play if you're on the right, but it doesn't sound, again, they sort of revert back. So they've identified the problem in a kind of relatively new way, but their solutions to my kind of mind, at least seem to be rather old fashioned. Let's have a more deregulated capitalism and that will sort out, you know, low wages. Whereas, an outside observer would say Britain's already pretty deregulated, so that's probably not the, the tool you need to use to get weight, low wages up. Do you think that there's perhaps a problem in, in viewing this primarily in terms of a paucity of ideas when perhaps it may be that the current economic conditions make it very hard to see what ideas might actually prove effective from a conservative standpoint? So, for instance, we're not in a situation where the government can reconstitute a base for itself by by selling off masses of, of council housing as it did in the 1980s. Sure. Um, and if it tries to make home ownership affordable to a broader constituency by building new houses, it risks its current electoral coalition by depressing house prices. And, you know, a, a lot of Conservative voters are people who, you know, just sit in their property and, and, and accrue income through, through yeah. rising house prices. I think that's a very good point. I think it is harder. I think something about Thatcherism particularly that's very important that's not said nearly enough is that to some extent Thatcherism has a sort of secret symbiotic relationship with kind of post-war social democracy, which is that post-war social democracy created a lot of assets like council housing that could then be sold off by the Thatcherites. Whereas now, if you're a conservative, you don't have a kind of big state that you can sort of slim down and generate income from. And also, I'd argue, you don't have a sort of deep social stability um, that Thatcher was able Thatcher was able to experiment quite wildly with British society because I would argue the society that she inherited in 1979 was fundamentally quite cohesive and quite stable, not necessarily a great society in every way, but it wasn't nearly as fragmented and polarised as the society you've got in Britain or America now. And I think that makes a sort of disruptive politics of the right, a kind of radical politics of the right, quite difficult because you're, you're playing with societies that already are kind of zooming off in all kinds of strange directions. So I think that's one factor that's a problem. But I think there are things conservatives can do. I mean, I've thought quite a lot about the whole kind of post-work debate. And when I've done work on that, what's interesting is post-work people that you encounter are nearly always on the left. And I would have thought that there ought to be people on the right saying, let's make work less central to our lives so that we can spend more time you know, with our families or, or maintaining traditional social structures. And yet you never meet conservatives who are in favor of post-work. They're always against it. So it seems to me like that's just a failure of imagination. There ought to be quite a conservative argument for doing less work. Um, but conservatives, I think, are afraid that post-work sort of sounds like something vaguely sort of Eastern European or 
sort of seven-digit token, and so they won't go near it. So I think there are some areas where they could, even now, think a bit more radically. Um, but it's almost like a habit of sort of iconoclastic thinking has slightly gone on the right. I'm sure it will come back. I'm not saying it's gone forever, but it feels at the moment that those patterns of thought just aren't there. And I mean, how, how do you think they do relate to, to the new left? I mean, you, you had a recent article in The Guardian about new economic thinking on the left and, and you know, pointing out that all the, all the sort of new ideas really, really are um, associated with, with, with the left and um, to a large extent to, with the Corbyn project. I mean, do, do you think that they view the Corbyn project as primarily a, a blip and that we're in this sort of temporary populist moment and that their ideas are really actually still quite, quite viable? Because I suppose one thing they can point to is that Although on social issues, young people are, are very much on the left, some of the values that conservatism is able to pivot off, you know, sort of an entrepreneurial mindset, um, in individualist values, uh, anti-collectivism, it, it's not so clear that younger voters couldn't be attracted by a conservative mes- message in those respects. I agree. I mean, you would think on the face of it that in a way, people, you know, millennial kind of Corbyn supporters are probably the most kind of free market generation there's ever been in terms of the trajectory of their own lives, their sort of personal branding and, you know, constantly sort of have got sort of projects. You know, my own kids are teenagers and I see that in them, that they're much more entrepreneurial than I am. Um, but I think conservatism still has a problem with that because I, I suppose in theory, conservatism favours small businesses and so on and so on. We know that. But I think in practice, especially now, it often ends up being very captured by, you know, big private sector kind of rentier capitalists, you know, the sort of circos of this world. And I think they dominate the sort of funding for the Conservative Party. They dominate a lot of the funding that goes to Trump and the Republicans. So I think institutionally, they have a distance from small business that's there. And I also think one of the things about the Corbyn project that's been quite clever I don't know how conscious it is, is that it's sort of given young people who are quite free market in their own lives a way to somehow integrate that with a more left wing kind of critique of the economy. So it's almost somebody saying, I want to set up a small business, but I can't because, you know, big housing companies have bought up all the land in the centre of Manchester and I can't get cheap land anymore. So I think that to an extent, the Corbyn project can kind of absorb that sort of free market side um, of the consciousness of a lot of young people and the fact that a lot of the Corbyn economic ideas, particularly through McDonnell and back through Ben, actually come from that quite anti-statist, quite often even anti-union kind of labour left tradition, quite libertarian tradition, means that it's able to sort of, at least for now, I think, to kind of draw in young people. I know loads of people just anecdotally who are very entrepreneurial and yet they're all absolute Corbynistas and I think the equivalence of those people in, say, the 70s would not have been voting left, but they are now. And I think conservatism hasn't quite worked out how to draw those people back in. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the Thatcher project, so much of the rhetoric was around freedom and, and being able to flourish. And I suppose in that respect, uh, the Corbyn project seems seems a lot more realistic in terms of serving those needs than reheated Thatcherism does today. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, to my mind... The way that, that, you know, I mean, I think Corbyn as a leader is in some ways quite limited. I think his project in some ways, you know, has some big flaws. But I think the thing that he and McDonnell and 
his people are sort of sitting on top of is a powerful kind of movement and it's a powerful set of social changes that are kind of feeding into that movement and i think that conservatives are still haven't worked that out at all i mean the, i understand that people need to say sort of crude things in elections but all the sort of back to the 70s stuff that's endlessly said about corbyn and mcdonald and so on to me that suggests because they don't get what's going on i don't think it works that well as propaganda anymore because obviously the 70s are so long ago but i think more to the point i think it shows a lot of conservatives genuinely don't get it that mm. when you say to conservatives look mcdonald hates the central state and hasn't been in favor of you know traditional post-war nationalization for decades they they look they either don't believe you or they just look startled they have no idea that there's a sort of libertarian left strand that corbyn and, and mcdonald are drawing on and i think there's also a bit of an incuriosity about the left on the part of modern conservatives. And I think that's a real problem. I think that they find it difficult to kind of draw out the different strands on the left and sort of almost identify clearly what they're up against. Whereas I think conservatives in the 70s in Britain and America were very, very well educated about the different bits of the left and how you might fight them and how you might produce kind of policy offers that will combat them. Whereas I think now that whole kind of Corbyn is an old Stalinist kind of thing, to me, it just shows they're not really getting where he's coming from um and and i think that's part of what i think their problem is that they don't quite understand their enemy yet even if corbyn is a bit limited and maybe a sort of 30 percent candidate um you know who's to say that who comes after corbyn won't articulate the same project but in a slightly more skillful way and then the problems for conservatives will be even worse electorally i mean who's to say that this is the high watermark of this sort of labor libertarian surge it might well be you know a younger probably female leader presenting exactly the same arguments but in a way that's less weighed down by corbyn's baggage I and mean, that could be even harder for for the conservatives to be i'd say so would you tend to to think that um you know, I don't always like using the, the term because it tends to personalise it. But but do you think Corbynism is, is likely to hegemonise Labour over the long term? Because, you know, what's very striking in comparing the Corbyn moment with when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party is that in both cases, it was an ideological tendency within the Labour Party that was a minority that took the leadership. But Blair was much more successful in getting the party to, to keep in line, basically, and... and uh, you don't see the same coherence within the Labour Party. And, and regarding that incuriosity you speak of, I mean, it seems to me there's, there's some similar incuriosity also in parts of the Labour Party regarding the Corbyn project and, and an echoing of that conservative line um, in viewing uh, Macdonald and Corbyn as, as throwbacks. I, th- I think that's right. I think that obviously Corbyn doesn't have control of the party especially not in parliament and we're seeing that you know today with with the whole revolt around the latest kind of bit of the anti-semitism around so absolutely he doesn't i think it's a funny kind of paradox to compare blair and corbyn i would argue that blairism had a tremendous force within the institution of the labor party within the electorate but as a sort of project that actually tapped into how britain was and britain was changing i think it quite rapidly weakened and that's why the Labour vote kind of fell down very rapidly election by election because I think Blairism didn't have a good account of the economy and how it was changing and was far too rose-tinted about how capitalism was going to provide for everybody so I think in a weird way the Corbyn project addresses modernity better than Blair did Hmm. but as party management it's much weaker Um, so no I don't think it's a done deal at all that what Corbyn represents is going to be the Labour thing for the next 10-15 years but it's quite possible, especially if the Corbyn thing 
survives another year or two. And then you've got all the people that join the party, all the people in momentum, all the sort of new MPs that will be coming in probably at the next election. The kind of cohort of Corbyn or left libertarian people in the party is going to expand massively in the next two or three years unless the right manages to get the party back. And as you've just sort of suggested, I don't think the sort of centre-right or centre-left part of the Labour Party has done much rethinking either of its kind of basic ideas um, or about what Corbynism really represents. I think there's been a kind of parallel sort of loss of intellectual energy in the centre-left that parallels the loss of intellectual energy and curiosity on the right. Go back to the Conservatives for a moment. So what's your view been on the Conservative leadership election? It feels to me like an even more extreme manifestation of some of the things we've been talking about. There's candidates, pretty much all of them, talking about massive tax cuts, which are going to be very hard to fund. There's very little talk about sort of winners and losers in today's economy. There's obviously an obsession with Brexit, which whatever your position on that, you know, is incredibly important, but it's not the only thing that's going to decide the viability of the Conservative Party in the long term. There's very little talk about changing demographics in Britain and how conservatism might address that. I think it's also the astonishing amount of media coverage that the campaign's getting in a way. I think that tells you sort of interesting things about where conservatism is, which is that it still has this incredible power in the culture. It's an object of fascination for The Guardian, for every paper about who's going to be the next Tory leader and every little wrinkle in the debate is covered enormously. So there's still this huge cultural power the Conservatives sort of sit absolutely central in our sort of sense of ourselves as a political country. But it's it's sort of, yeah, strangely kind of low energy, low quality. I mean, something we haven't talked about is I think there's been a sort of falling off in terms of talent on the right. And I think that's a really big problem, that the fact that the final two in the leadership contest of Boris Johnson who, you know, obviously is a very, very poor administrator and, you know, you know, although charismatic in some ways he's not really a huge figure in the kind of long-term history of the Conservative Party, I don't think. And then Jeremy Hunt, who's, you know, fairly bland. I don't think the talent that's been on show in the contest has has really been, you know, there's not been much there. And I think that's a real problem, that there's a lack of kind of charismatic, interesting figures there. And I suppose that happens partly if you've been in power for nine years. But I think there's been a falling off. You think of various people in sort of Thatcher's cabinets and so on. Again, I don't want to see them as great men or great women, but I think there were a lot, you would have had a much more interesting leadership contest in the mid 80s, say, if you'd taken the seven or eight you know, most interesting people out of her cabinet than you're getting now. One aspect of the, of the crisis that we haven't talked about is the, the declining membership of the Conservative Party. I mean, it seems like the party has increased its membership slightly recently with a, an influx of people from, from UKIP. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, it used to be a huge mass party, you know, with a bigger membership than the Labour Party um, in, the, in the post-war era. How much of a problem do you think that is for the Conservatives? And and I wondered, is there any point for them in trying to seek a a larger membership? Or or is it, it in fact, better to try and emulate something like the Brexit Party, which is, you know, almost a a party in name only? It's more like a platform um, that doesn't really have normal party structures. I think that there's potential in going for a different kind of party institution. I don't think there's anything that says it's automatically good to have hundreds of thousands of party members. I think people can kind of overplay that. But I think you lose, if you don't have many members, I do think you lose your kind of social sort of observers. 
I think one of the reasons why the Conservative Party in, say, the 50s was able to be very electorally successful was because that enormous membership involved all kinds of people. So pretty much everywhere in Britain, there would be lots of members. So you kind of had a sense in the party of the texture of society and how it was shifting and social processes. And I think if the membership gets very small, you lose those kind of those sort of antennae are not there anymore. And I think some of that disconnect between how people are actually living now and how conservatism responds with policies because they just genuinely don't know in liberal metropolitan Britain how many conservatives are there. Whereas I think in the 50s, even in very liberal areas of Britain, there'd been plenty of conservative members who would have you know, been able to in, in direct and direct ways feed information back into the machine about this is what's going on, this is what people in Hampstead are talking about and so on. So I think there is a bit of a problem there. I think there's also a problem within the membership of how active they are as well. I mean, I think it's, it's established, isn't it, that Conservative members are not as active as Labour members. So even if you grow the membership, are you going to be able to use it in the way that Labour uses membership to kind of flood marginal seats with people mm-hmm. to do, you know, to knock on doors and so on? I think that's very potent at the moment. I think Conservatives can copy that technique and they may well do that, but have they actually, can they actually rustle up enough people 300 people to go, you know, spend the day canvassing in Canterbury, you know, 80 miles away from where they live, as Labour managed to do you know, in, the, in the last election. So I think, I think the membership is a problem. Yeah, I do. And I think a lot of people who like to write off traditional parties were saying a few years ago, oh, having a big membership doesn't give you any value. And then when you look at how that membership was used by Labour in 2017, I think that's shown that, that a, a large party membership does have some uses. It's not just the kind of some, a number that makes you feel good. You talk in the piece about how the crisis of, of conservatism has been, it's been diagnosed for quite a long time. And would I be right in thinking that, that, that you think there's not really going to be a proper reckoning and there won't really be an attempt at a strategic and intellectual reorientation on the part of conservatives until they are defeated and it's not necessarily obvious when that will happen because it it depends upon the left uh, getting its, its act together um, to a greater extent than it than it has so far. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I'm not gonna. Obviously, I don't know what will happen in the, in the next few elections in this kind of chaotic era. But I think it's quite possible that Trump might lose in 2020, and that might cause some Republicans to think, "Hang on, we went off in the wrong direction." Um, but I think in Britain. Although I think it's quite possible that Labour will be the largest party in the next general election, I don't think the Conservatives will do quite badly enough to really think, oh God, we need a really big rethink. They need to probably mm. lose decisively. And yeah, I think that might that might not happen for a bit. Um, I mean, I think the other problem is, if you look at the Conservatives in Britain after the 97 election, obviously an enormous defeat. But the rethink that went on after that certainly until Cameron became leader, was really kind of limited. There was huge resistance when Haig started to make a few little moves more towards the centre. Um, they didn't really... I was writing about the Conservatives a lot in that period in the sort of late 90s, early noughties, and a lot of Conservatives got very caught up in things like defending hunting and sort of, slight, to my mind, slightly marginal issues. There wasn't that much rethinking, even though they lost, obviously, in 97 and 2001 by vast margins. I think that's a sign of the grip of the sort of ageing Thatcherite orthodoxy in the party is that even when they've been absolutely crushed in elections, it hasn't led them to really rethink. And, and Cameron obviously rethought for a while, but then I would argue quite quickly reverted to a more traditional sort of shrink the state, tax cutting, 
less socially liberal conservatism. There was only really two or three years of him thinking, hang on, this needs to change. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.